Great joy to be with you this morning, join with you together to worship the Lord. When God called Abraham, he said, I will bless you and I will make you to be a blessing. And if you're new with us today, and we welcome you, you're in the presence of a radically generous people who have received so much grace and mercy from God. And so that has stirred our hearts. Why have we received so much grace? Well, if you've received a lot of grace, there's only one reason that could be true, and that's because we're great sinners. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So if you're new with us today and you're looking around and you're going, I know that person, I would not have expected to see them in church. But that's why they're here. That's why they're here. That's why I'm here. Great sinners. And so we are the recipients of great grace a great grace, and so we are blessed to be a blessing. So we share that grace with other people. Grace is communicated in many ways. Grace is communicated by loving our neighbors in very practical ways and by sharing Christ with them, and we're pleased to do that not only here but around the world. And so when we give to God out of the first of all of the income we've received as well, we are extending grace. That's what Abraham did. He was blessed to be a blessing. And so these generous people are continually supplying the needs of others who are planting churches, who are caring for the broken, who are feeding the hungry, who are clothing the naked, who are giving shelter to the homeless. And in doing so, you are showing the deeds of Jesus in all the world. And so the opportunity before us is great. The call on all of our members is amazing because God has blessed us to be a blessing. And so this morning, I want to invite you to do a couple of things with me here at this point in the service. Number one, we're going to take a moment and we're going to confess our sins because we are the recipients of great grace. In the letter to John, it says that if you say you don't have any sin, you're really lying to yourself. And so when you confess your sins, you're not, you're not informing God about the sins. It's not like if you confess your sins, God goes, wow, I had no idea. <laughs> no, what we're doing is we're getting honest with ourselves and with those around us and just saying, you know what, really, the truth is, in seen and unseen, in heard and unheard ways, I know there's corruption that dwells within me. It's breaking God's law and breaking God's heart and it hurts other people and it hurts myself and I need to be cleansed of that. And because of that, we receive this great grace that God pours upon us in Jesus Christ. And then as recipients of grace, we're gonna extend grace to others. We're gonna pray for our offering today. And if you came today ready to give, because some people give weekly, some people give monthly, some people give annually, we're not gonna be passing a plate this morning, but there are places on your way out where you can leave those gifts if you've come and you are writing a check or something like that. You can give online at uh, SpanishRiver.com forward slash give. And uh, you can go there and make those gifts present there too. So would you join me? Let's confess our need for God's grace and our joy in sharing graciously with others. Let's pray together. Lord, you see us. There is nothing hidden from your sight. You know our hearts and you know our need for you. And so we come before you. We come before you 
knowing that you are a God who is merciful to us when we are honest about our need for forgiveness and mercy. And we pray for that. In so many ways, Lord, we have failed to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We have done what we shouldn't have done and we have not done what we should have done. And so, Lord, look upon us and have mercy on us. Would you just take a silent moment now and between you and God, just confess your need for his mercy in your life. Confess your sins to the Lord. Lord, here in the silence of that moment, we hear the promise of Jesus, it is finished. It is paid in full. And that there is therefore, as Paul wrote in Romans, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You have promised us that if we do confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ that forgives all of our sins. And now, Lord, because you have blessed us and you've been so gracious to us, we now, Lord, open our hearts to you. We open all of our treasures to you. And we say, Lord, would you please take these offerings which we give today and use them for your glory and the extension of your kingdom here and in all the world. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me invite you this morning to turn with me to... Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, if you're new with us today, we are wrapping up a brief series that we've been doing on suffering in the life of believers. And we're looking at the uniquely Christian view of suffering. Suffering, of course, is a common human experience. It's an experience of the animal kingdom. It's the experience of the entire cosmos because of the rebellious fall of humankind. But um, so while all people suffer and there are various Approaches to suffering philosophically that are taken by any number of different people um, and different religions and uh, the secular view that suffering is just random and part of an evolutionary cycle to produce uh, the strongest uh, going forward in the human race. The Christian view of suffering is very different. And we are reminded in Scripture that it is by suffering that God saves the world. And that Christ not only suffered on the cross as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sin, but because we are in union with Christ, because when you have faith in Christ, Christ comes to dwell in your heart, you you have Christ in you, and you are in Christ, that when believers suffer, Christ, as you sang a few moments ago, is suffering in your suffering. He is weeping with you. It's what Paul in Philippians chapter 3 calls the fellowship of of sufferings. Paul knew great suffering, and so he calls God the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul even wrote that he felt like he had a sentence of death. He despaired even of life. And so this reminds us that suffering isn't something which is merely physical or medical or fiscal or relational, but deeply psychological as well. And so people know affliction in a whole host of ways. And in a group, a community of people this size this morning, there are no doubt many among us who are suffering today. And we've learned from Psalm 23 that we meet Christ in the valley of the shadow of death. That God in that place goes from someone we merely talk about, the Lord is my shepherd, speaking of him, 
to someone we know face to face, where the psalmist then says, you are with me. We begin to know God face to face sometimes in these places of pain, and we are prepared by God in those places of pain to serve others. He develops in us through suffering the empathy and the capacity to weep with those who weep, to draw near to others who are in pain, and to take the experience of what has happened in our own lives and bring comfort to them. And I want to bring before you this morning a final aspect of how God works in the seasons of suffering that we endure. And it's here in Hebrews chapter 12, the first 13 verses. And I want to talk to you this morning about developing a resilient faith, a resilient faith. This is a passage of scripture, which if I were asked a poll question, name a passage in the New Testament that is rarely treated, rarely gets much, much press, but is so needed today, I would say instantaneously, Hebrews 12, these first 13 verses. And so I want to I point out to you that the, this letter is written to suffering believers. If you read through Hebrews, you will find out that their leaders have been imprisoned for their faith, that these people, because of their faith, have had their homes confiscated. They are people who have gone through so much and are enduring so much, they're under so much pressure that many are beginning, to use a popular term now, to deconstruct in their faith. And they've stopped meeting together. Many of them have ceased assembling for worship and just said, well, I I just don't know. The social pressure um, is so great on them that they're questioning whether or not faith in Jesus is something that can be maintained. Whether or not it's, it's... something which in their culture is worth continuing to keep. And we don't know who the writer of Hebrews was, but he writes to these people who are under tremendous pressure, suffering greatly, and he points them to Jesus on the cross. Let's read it, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, That's talking about everything he's just written about all the Old Testament saints and their suffering. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us, and just count the number of times endurance shows up in this text. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What he means by that is that while you've got leaders who are in prison and you're hungry and you're thirsty and your homes have been taken away from you, none of you have yet been fed to the lions. That's encouragement. That's how bad things are. Hey, let me tell you the good news. Nobody's been killed yet. All right, that's the level of suffering that's going on here. And then he says, but you may have forgotten something. You may have forgotten something in the middle of all the suffering and all the pain, and I want to remind you of it. You've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as God's children. 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. The NIV says, treat your, your suffering as discipline. Treat your suffering as discipline. God is treating you like his children. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children, not actually sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? They, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Therefore, Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for your great goodness to us and we ask, O oh Lord, that you would speak to us and as we sang a few moments ago, open the eyes of our heart that we may behold your beauty and taste and see that you are good. We pray this in Jesus' matchless and mighty name. Amen. So the writer tells these suffering people two great things which are before them as a people who are in pain. First of all, he says to them, you are to look to Christ, to the suffering of the Savior. You see it in verses two and three. He says, look to Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Hebrews 12, two and three. Here's the first thing, the suffering of the Savior. I want you to just to consider this for a moment. He says, Christ is an example for us. He suffered for the joy that was going to come afterwards. Now, I want to just talk to you about Jesus as an example here for just a moment. The deeds and the works of Jesus in the Bible are not set before us, first of all, first of all, as an example. The deeds and the works of Jesus are set before us in the Bible, first of all, as his accomplished work in which we rest. The very first thing about everything that Jesus did in fulfilling the law of God and becoming the substitute for our sins and dying on the cross, the very first thing that we see when we look there is the one who takes our place. Why? Because we are by nature children of wrath. Our hearts are twisted by sin. We know that we need a savior and we cannot save ourselves. The bad news is we need saving. It gets worse. We cannot save ourselves. The good news is that God has sent his Savior. For God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the message of the writer of Hebrews, if you read the whole letter, is not, if you would just be more like Jesus, then you will be saved. How many of you know that's not the gospel and give thanks? Because if the gospel was... 
if you will just be like Jesus, then maybe you can get in in the end. That would not be good news because none of us are anywhere close to Jesus. In fact, if you had a day where you thought, you know, I'm a lot like Jesus, that would be, that would be problematic, right? So we're not like him. We know that we were created to be like him. We know that we're destined finally to be like him, but we know that right now we're not. If you had a humble day, you'd be proud of it. And so, the deeds of Jesus on the cross are there, first of all, not as an example, but as the offering that he makes in which we rest. And we say, Jesus, you have paid it all. But then, having rested in the work of Jesus, when we do face terrible trials, the writer of Hebrews, and Peter does the very same thing in his epistle, he says, Christ in his suffering has left us an example. And so we do look to Christ in his suffering. And it says he suffered for the joy that was set before him. Now that pattern of suffering now, joy later, is all over the New Testament. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, says that these momentary light afflictions, that's what he called his suffering. (laughs) He He said, I was beaten with rods five times, I've been whipped, I've been stoned, I've been shipwrecked. These momentary light afflictions, what would be heavy? These momentary light afflictions are producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. In Romans chapter 8, he said, he said, the suffering of this present age is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to follow. Now, here's the, here's the thing, you see. This is why we need to look to Jesus and know this pattern. We are addicted to this age. We are addicted to our affluence. We are addicted to our status. We are addicted to pleasing ourselves. And whenever something cuts across our status, our supply, our pleasure, whenever that occurs, whenever something grieves us when we are suffering, whether it's psychologically and emotionally, or we're suffering relationally and something's broken, or we're suffering fiscally, whenever some kind of suffering happens medically and fiscally, we cling so hard to this age. But the apostles weren't that way. They said to live is Christ, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. We don't look at things that way, do we? All we experience when we encounter death is loss. We would say to live is Christ and to die is, well, okay, I guess. All right. But actually, the truth is, We do suffer now, and there is a glory to follow. And so we do follow Jesus. But then Paul says something else, uh, not only about the suffering of the Savior, but the discipline of the saints. And this is something, when we're suffering, we can't forget. He says, I'm afraid you've forgotten here, the writer of Hebrews tells us, about God disciplining us, that the Lord disciplines his children. Now, of course, as soon as you hear the word discipline, we think punishment. God's punishing us. But do you remember that's not the Christian view of suffering? That's really the Hindu view or the Buddhist view, the karma view that says, well, you've done something bad in a past life and now you're paying for it. That's the view in the Old Testament of Job's friends who sat silently with Job while he suffered for a little while and then finally after several days looked at him in all of his pain, all of his agony, and then they just kind of looked around at each other and said, who wants, who wants to tell him? Okay, we'll do it. What did you do, Job? What did you do to deserve this? 
And sometimes we can even say that to God in our pain and in our suffering. Lord, what did I do? What did I do to deserve this? Well, actually, the deeper you go in your faith, you'll realize that the question, what did I do to deserve this, is really best asked when it comes to forgiveness. Lord, who am I that you had mercy on me? Who am I? I deserved death and you gave me life. And so, brothers and sisters, when we encounter pain, we have to have a redemptive, we have to have a redemptive way of, of viewing it, and it's here in this text. Because discipline here does not mean punishment. The Greek term that Paul uses here is paideia. It was a well-known term in the ancient world, or not Paul used. I keep saying Paul wrote Hebrews. I'm gonna have to, now I'm gonna have to publish a study Bible that says Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, and everybody's gonna go, wow, how did he know that? So, um, uh, uh, but maybe Paul did, I don't know. But the writer of Hebrews says, the writer of Hebrews uses this term paideia. Paideia is an ancient Greek term that was used for centuries in Greek language culture about the forming of a virtuous soul, the total education of a person so that they became an ideal citizen. It's the word Paul uses in Ephesians 6, that Paul did write Ephesians, by the way, and he says, he says, parents, train your children up in the Lord. Train them up. It's the same word he uses. In other words, what you're doing is not just teaching them verses, but you're teaching them the whole of life. You're bringing them into a certain culture. That's not punishment. That's not punishment. That's enculturating people in a whole new way of living. And so what the writer of Hebrews tells us here is that God wants to make us holy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, we endure this suffering right now that we may become holy people, that we may share in his holiness. Now I have to, something to say to you right now, which you're gonna go, oh man, but I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, God is more interested in your holiness than in your happiness. I knew there'd only be about three amens on that. I just knew it. <laughs> now, because why? Because we're interested in happiness. And if you want to be a best-selling Christian author, all you got to do is publish a series of books about how Jesus will make you happy. In fact, that's a great altar call. Everybody who's sad and wants to be happy, please come forward. That's like saying everybody who loves your mother, please come forward. I see that hand, right? No, happiness, happiness is wonderful and beautiful when it, when it occurs in life. But the, the Bible turns happiness on its head. It's the word blessed. Blessed, it shows up in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Blessed, happy are those who mourn. That makes no sense. Blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the poor. What? Nobody puts that on Instagram. Haven't eaten for three days, hashtag blessed. Nobody does that, nobody does that. Got fired, hashtag blessed. Nobody does that, nobody does that. But the values of the kingdom are completely inverted. And God is after our holiness. Why is he after our holiness? Because he's fitting us for heaven so that we can dwell there forever with the angels and be holy in every respect, holy in our attitudes, holy in our speech, holy in our posture, holy in our, in our approach to the work that God gives us to do. We become holy people. 
He already calls you saints. He calls, that's a word that means holy ones. He calls you that right now. He calls you that right now. You are saints. You are holy ones. And what God is doing is he's in the process of turning you into what he calls you now. He calls you that thing and then he transforms you so that you become like that. He does that all over the Bible. I mentioned Abraham earlier this morning. Abraham was not his first name. His first name was Abram. Abram, which means father. But then he changed his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. He had zero children when God called him Abraham. Hey, I'm going to change your name. It's going to be Abraham, father of a multitude. And Abraham looked around and went, this is kind of funny. And then every day at dinner time, Sarah, his wife, stood at the door of the tent and would call out to him that it was dinner time. Father of a multitude, supper time. And of course, all of the neighbors are going, father of a multitude. What a joke. You know, that's what anybody could think of us if they heard God say about us, holy ones, saints. 1 Corinthians 7 says the children of believers are holy. Your children are holy. You go, yeah, not mine, baby, not mine. Viper in a diaper, that's mine, man. I don't know. I don't know about that. No, God is in the process of transforming us so that we become what he calls us. It's paideia. It's becoming enculturated in the life of the kingdom. And that means suffering. Why? Because God, how does God save the world? By suffering. Our God is a suffering God. He is a long-suffering God. We have a suffering Savior who not only suffered for us, but suffers with us. And so it's no surprise that suffering is part of our life as well. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us that if you don't have this, you really have to question the validity of your faith. If your faith is untested, then it's a faith which might be invalid. Suffering takes us to places that prove our faith. And it's not punishment, it's training. Think boot camp. Some of you, many of you have served in the armed forces. Think Marine Corps boot camp. Paris Island, 13 weeks. Let me see the hands of Marines. There you are. You know what you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, God bless you. I'll pick on Strabeck. It was all joy, wasn't it? All joy. Yeah, I can hear Strabeck. <laughs> it was just joy. But you know what? Here's what happened. Get through all of those weeks. You get to the end. At the end, they saved the best for last, the crucible. And you go through this entire course of endurance. And then at the very end of it, you run, past, you cross that finish line. Then you line up with all of your, your fellow recruits and somebody walks up to you, that drill sergeant walks up to you and takes the symbol of the Marine Corps and presses it into your hand. You are now no longer a recruit, now you are a Marine. And if you've seen those ceremonies, you see strong men and brave women, when they put that symbol in their hand, tears running down their faces. Because it was worth the suffering to own the name. And you know what happens? You're changed forever by those moments. 
no matter what your area of service was, you were changed forever. What happened during those 13 weeks? What happened at the beginning is you walked in going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, and somebody gave you a haircut so you look like me. And you're out of shape and you don't know what to say and you don't know where you're going and you don't understand the values of the core or anything else. And then at the end of it, you're, now you're this, you're changed. Why does God create these moments in our life? He's changing us. You know what I did in the hospital for those 15 days? I told you during Psalm, the message on Psalm 23. I repented. I spent so much time repenting. And that's why there are two things he says in this text that you got to avoid, two dangers. He says about the discipline, the paideia of God, number one, he says, don't take it lightly. Don't ignore it. When you go into seasons of sorrow, seasons of suffering, don't ignore it. Say, Jesus, help me to make much of you during this season. Train in me. Train me in holiness through this season. Don't ignore it. Don't take it lightly. But listen to the second thing. He says, don't be weary in it. Don't give up. Don't give up. Because it's easy to give up. If you're in SEALs training, my brother was Navy Special Forces, it's easy to ring the bell. They try to make it easy to ring the bell. They'll offer you biscuits and gravy while you're in the sand on the beach. Hey, just ring the bell. Got a hot shower. Just go over there. No problem. They'll even bring it out. They, he said, you can smell the stuff. All you got to do is ring the bell. Just quit. That's what Satan does. Just quit. Deconstruct. Forget God. There's nowhere. You don't see God anywhere near you, do you? Of course you feel that way. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, on a Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, Jesus Christ hung on a cross, and he said, my God, my God, finish it with me. Why have you forsaken me? And there was no answer. Heaven was silent. The silence of heaven in that moment to Jesus' question, Father, why have you forsaken me? In that silence is the gospel. In that moment, Jesus Christ became the sin center of the universe, and all of the wrath of Almighty God fell upon him so that you and I would not have to suffer any of it. He bore our sin in his body on the tree, and he died so that we could be forgiven. And he knew that there would be moments in our life where God would feel absent, and the light would be gone at midday, just like it was for him on that Friday afternoon when the sun was obscured and you feel like God has abandoned you. But I tell you this morning, my friends, all of you in this place and all of you online, it is exactly in the moment where you feel like God has most abandoned you, that he is accomplishing the most in you. And you will find him. There is joy on the other side of the cross. And that is why I urge all of us today to have resilient faith, the kind of faith that fixes its eyes on Jesus Christ and all of his suffering and says, I will follow you, and the kind of hearts that are fixed on holiness. My friends, happiness is an idol, and if you pursue it, you will end up empty. But holiness is your calling, and if you pursue it, you will end up eternally happy. C.S. Lewis said, if you pursue the world and ignore heaven, you will lose both. But if you set your heart on heaven, 
you will gain it and have earth thrown in. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Jesus, that you suffered and you died for us. You paid the price for our sin that if we put our trust and belief in you, you will forgive us and cleanse us. And we thank you that you've also set us an example for the joy that is set before you. Lord, as we find ourselves in various boot camps this morning, we pray that you will do a deep work in our hearts and set us on the pilgrimage of holiness. Lord, only you know how far we've fallen, and so the work is deep that has to take place in our souls. So Lord, accomplish that work in us, I pray. And I pray for any among us today who've not put their faith in Christ, that they will come to you and bow before you and say, Jesus, I need you to be my savior. I thank you for your mercy and grace to me, a great sinner. And I pray for all who are discouraged and this morning feel like giving up. And I pray, Lord, that they would hear and see you again at the cross and find in your example the enduring, resilient faith to walk on. Walk on in Jesus' name. Amen.